namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami <clears throat> this is the uh, second uh, talk from this uh, collection called Don't Take Your Life Personally and this was given on the 31st of July 2001 in the evening at the uh, Leicester Summer School and it's called Beginning to Sense the Unborn When you contemplate the Four Noble Truths and use them as your paradigm for practice, it becomes clear that the third and fourth truths are definitely the realization of the unborn, or the unconditioned, Nibbāna. Much of the meditation taught within, the Therav- within Theravada Buddhism these days is vipassana, insight meditation, and in this, the three characteristics of existence, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, anicca, dukkha, anatha, are given tremendous emphasis. These three characteristics are common to all phenomena, and they are for reflection. It isn't a question of adopting these three words and projecting them onto experience. Some people do try to do this. They hold these particular concepts and interpret their experiences through their belief in them, rather than taking the concepts and reflecting on experience. I just want to emphasize the way is through mindfulness, intuitive attention and openness, rather than through grasping concepts, ideas, doctrines, or positions. So in that respect, um, just you know, the, uh, the mind can be repeating the idea, anicca, 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 impermanent, impermanent, impermanent. And so that there's the, the, the idea of that quality is being held in mind, but that actual, uh, say, um, Recognition or realization of that changing quality uh, can be uh, still uh, remote, uh, or uh, saying not self, not self, not self. But the attitude that can be there, even though the mind is repeating the words not self, can be <laughs> this: this is mine, this is what I am. Uh, just as the word music isn't music; it's just a word. It's representing that quality, but it's it's not actually embodying that quality. So that uh, um, the uh, uh, the point that I feel that the Lumpur Sumedho is making here is that um, the uh, uh, the use of the, these uh, qualities of anicca, dukkha, anatta, therefore, uh, say exploring the nature of experience rather than like an idea laid on top of them. So in a way, they're more like questions: like, you know, is this changing? Is this something that has an owner? We say this is um, this is in my mind. What, what's the what's the me that's doing the owning of that mind? Uh, what is that? Where is that? How, uh, how does that feel? So that the the three characteristics are like the tools for investigating the nature of experience rather than just you know, ideas about them. Does that make sense? It's a, uh, it's a different quality of approach. Uh, so that oftentimes people 
will take. So Anicca Dukkha Anatta, as what uh, you would call in, in sort of Christ, Christian tradition, articles of faith, like we're supposed to believe everything is impermanent, or we're supposed to believe everything is not self. But they are, uh, the way that they are talked about, particularly in the forest tradition, and what Lumpur Sumedha is indicating here, is they're more like tools that you use for examining experience, like a, a set of tools that you'd use to take apart a, a, an engine, or a, a, you know, some spanners and screwdrivers, and uh, Allen keys and such like, that there are uh, tools that you, you use to unpack or, or uh, deconstruct the nature of experience itself. So they're, they're tools to support investigation rather than ideas to believe in. I see many people who practice insight meditation getting stuck in continually noting the impermanence of phenomena. In that, however, the reality of cessation tends not to be realized in any practical way. Because of that, it seems that a lot of the insight meditation centers in the West have resorted to other ways of helping them to come to realization of cessation and the unborn. There's a great deal of interest in Tibetan Dzogchen, Advaita Vedanta, and the teachings of Punjaji. And the footnote on Punjaji, H.W.L. Uh, Punjaji, who died in 1997, was a close disciple of Ramana Maharshi. He was not part of any formal tradition, but became highly respected in the Advaita Vedanta and Bhakti traditions. His teachings, mostly given in Lucknow, India, were very popular among British and American Vipassana practitioners. So, uh, which is very, uh, very true. So, and then uh, Sri Ramana Maharshi, he was um, a teacher of Advaita Vedanta, and uh, he was based in southern India at uh, Tiruvannamalai, where his ashram is still flourishing. The, um, uh, the, uh, <coughs> the sort of southern southern tip of India down in, in uh, Tamil Nadu province, um, and uh, so that it, this is a very common experience. Uh, uh, the uh, people coming to to Theravada retreats uh, uh, or coming to Theravadan centers like like uh, IMS or Spirit Rock and places, but they would be frequently the people would be uh, going to Dzogchen uh, retreats or to uh, Teachings by Advaita Vedanta teachers, um, so in a way to get that, that you know, the uh, the uh, the unborn, the shot of the unborn, because of the um, a sense of um, that not being present or, or evident. So one of the reasons why uh, Ajahn Pasna and I wrote that book, The Island, was precisely because of that. It was um, uh, back in <coughs> the early times of me being in in California uh, there was a program called um, community dharma leaders that was just being launched by James Barras one of the spirit rock uh, dharma teachers who uh, was based in Berkeley and uh, he said you know we uh, we we go along to these teachings by Punjaji and uh, people are, are going to to listen to teachings by Andrew Cohen and Gangaji and these uh, uh, advaita teachers or going to Dzogchen uh, retreats and such like but uh, he said, I, I know there are these kind of teachings in Theravada, but uh, I don't know where to find them. Can, could, could you possibly come and do a, a presentation at um, the community Dharma leaders? We're having these training sessions. Could you come and do a, a, a presentation on these, um, so, uh, these uh, uh, ultimate reality teachings from the Pali Canon? So, of course, I just said yes. <laughs> and so then it was um, uh, out of the, the, uh, the notes and things I prepared, Suta quotations that uh, I put together for that with cons- consulting with Ajahn Pasno and I uh, put that together for um, for that session 
and then that um, and after that then the community at Amayagiri said well you, you're doing this for all these lay people what about us so then uh, Ajahn Pasana and I spent a winter retreat similarly going through those those uh, kind of teachings and researching them ourselves and so that eventually took shape over the next 10 years as that book The Island interestingly enough as, a, as a, an aside so you, know, you have these um, very high-minded ultimate reality teachings um, that uh, you know, talking about Nibbana and the unborn, the unconditioned, the uncreated and so on so the day that I was invited to give the first presentation to the community Dharma leaders session it was like about uh, 70 or 80 people were gathered for this it was like a four day long program um, and they would have two or three gatherings for, for three or four days over a, a two or three year period. And this was the very first one. This was launching it. And James Barras had invited me to come along and do this sort of uh, presentation on ultimate reality teachings. So normally I'm, I'm a fairly healthy person. Um, but coming into that, that meeting, I suddenly became incredibly nauseous. I became you know, really, really sick. And so... Um, it was, you know, I've been quite sort of um, interested and inspired to do this, but it was, a, it was an interesting counterpoint to these ultimate reality teachings. I was literally ex uh, engaged in projectile vomiting, which is probably not a term. That if, you don't, if English is not your first language, then that means like throwing up with such force that your vomit is kind of flying out of your face with great speed. And I was, just, and I was sweating. I had, my heart was kind of pounding. I was kind of... And then this leaping up and vomiting into this, the bathroom again. And I think, oh, I've got to go up and give this presentation in 10 minutes. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but then things sort of abated to the point, okay, it's three minutes to nine, okay. <sighs> Am I ready? Okay. So I went out and I did this hour-long presentation. And then, uh, uh, then you had questions and so on. And then, and then left the room and then ran to the bathroom again. <laughs> So it was, uh, it was almost like the universe was saying, oh, ultimate reality, eh? Well, let's, let's, have some, uh, let's have some mundanity put in there as well, just to kind of keep things balanced. You know, let's, not get, let's not get too lofty here. You know, there is the, the human condition. It, it, was, it was pretty weird, actually, because I hadn't uh, been so ill for, for, for a long, long time, and there was no particular apparent reason why I hadn't eaten anything that I was aware of that was making me ill, but it had this intense physical reaction that was this, there as this counterpoint to these very uh, non-material, lofty um, uh, uh, the ultimate reality teachings. So it was a very memorable occasion. <laughs> so, uh, and because of that, it seems that a lot of the insight meditation centers in the West have resorted to other ways of helping people to come to the realization of cessation and the unborn. And there's a great deal of interest in Tibetan Dzogchen, Advaita Vedanta, and the teachings of Punjaji. The whole point of these teachings is the realization of the unborn, or the deathless, or we could say ultimate reality. Now when you use words to refer to something that doesn't exist, it can remain abstract. That's a good sentence, isn't it? So for us, the unborn can be just another abstraction of the mind, and we wonder what it is, or where it is, or whether it's really true, or whether there really is such a thing as the deathless. And the more we try to analyze or think about it in this way, the more we limit ourselves to the conceptual mind and the conditions of the mind 
that we create. At our ordination as monks in a Theravada tradition, we have to say that we are taking on the monastic form for the realization of Nibbāna. That's part of the, the procedure both for novice um, precepts and uh, the, uh, for the Siladara, for the Samaniras, for the Bhikkhus, the uh, um, uh, Sabadukha Nitsarana, for the purpose of crossing over all Dukkha, transcending all Dukkha, Nibbāna Satchikarnataya, for the purpose of realizing Nibbāna. So you repeat that over and over in the, in the ordination procedure. But what does that mean? What does it mean to realize desirelessness, cessation, emptiness, or non-self, viraga, niroda, sunyata, anatta? These are all abstractions. They're words that point to, but cannot define. Realization, therefore, has to come through intuition. This is what I emphasize and encourage now in the way that I teach. I see that people often don't have enough confidence or trust in their own experience of emptiness and non-self. It is so easy to fall back into the questioning mode. What is it? And want to objectify it in some way. Want to pin it down or turn it into some kind of mental object that can be verified and proven, maybe scientifically. When we use such words as existing or not existing, they convey the sense of something coming up, existing, and then disappearing and no longer existing. Some years ago when the, quote, God is dead, unquote, fad came into being, I was just becoming a monk, bhikkhu in Thailand. A Thai magazine, I remember, had this striking headline, God is dead. That's rather a strong thing to say, and it certainly created all kinds of emotional reactions at the time. Some people didn't really care about it, but others felt it was a real attack on their basic belief and what they depended on. If God is something created, something that arises and ceases, and of course it means that God dies. The word God, quote-unquote, one of those words that we take for granted, can, however, be put into the category of the unborn, the uncreated. Even in Christian theology, Christian mysticism, the realization of God is through non-attachment, through letting go, rather than through finding somebody called God that comes, in, that comes and goes in one's life. There also... Um, it's uh, it's interesting that um, when Lumpur Samedha was here in December, he was speaking uh, on uh, very, very similar themes and talking about Dhamma being uh, unimaginable. Those of you who are here, you see, you know, you, it's unimaginable. You can't imagine it. There's no image for Dhamma. You can't create an image of Dhamma. So it's unimaginable. And so similarly, a word like existing, when we use the word to, to we say something exists, the general way that we use the word in English is that therefore it's real. But uh, often in, in his, maybe he will do later on in this talk, but in many talks that uh, Lumpur Samedo gave, um, uh, he would say to exist literally means to stand out. Something that is, is X means out, or uh, exist literally means to stand out from something. Um, to, and so that a something exists doesn't necessarily mean that that's a real thing. It just means that it's, it's standing out from the back from the background. Does that make sense? So, uh, on this note, uh, Venerable Panyuado, who was a, a British forest monk, um, uh, who was actually uh, <coughs> one of the very first uh, Westerners to be ordained in Thailand as a monk in the in the nineteen fifties, uh, he, uh, he uh, it was a disciple of Ajahn Mahabur, what Pabantat for many years. This very neat little saying, which was, uh, the five khandas exist, 
but they're not real. The Dhamma is real, but it doesn't exist. Again, even if English is your first language, that's a bit hard to get your head around. I'll say it again. So the five khandhas exist. So the body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, they stand out. They're, they're visible, tangible things. There's a thingness to the five khandhas. Potentiality. They're not ultimately real. The Dhamma doesn't exist. It doesn't stand out. But it's, yeah, but it's real. Again, these are thoughts for reflection rather than doctrinal statements. But uh, it's a, if you want to sit on something this evening, it's a nice little nugget to take with you into the temple. <laughs> so the five khandhas exist, but they're not real. The Dhamma is real, but it doesn't exist. <clears throat> anyway, this um, phrase, God is dead, that, um, I believe it was Friedrich Nietzsche who was um, first put that into print back in the uh, 19th century. And then that got um, developed. Uh, and so when Lumpur Sumato was a, a student in Berkeley, uh, UC Berkeley, and uh, as he said, he, uh, he talked about at that time, it was the mid-50s, and so people were very fond of existentialism in that time. And so carrying around copies of Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, Being and Nothingness and such like, often carrying the copy around and not actually reading. <laughs> but having it in the coffee shop while you had your arguments with your friends, but uh, not necessarily reading it from beginning to end. Uh, but that uh, also that uh, um, the kind of uh, materialist, uh, ra- a rational materialist approach to life uh, and trying to get away from theistic ways of thinking. And this uh, statement, God is dead, is um, a way of putting those um, theistic or superstitious um, and uh, uh, sort of um, superficial ways of thinking behind us and such like, so that uh, this is um, uh, we're talking about when he he became a monk was in uh, six, he became a novice in 1966, became a bhikkhu in 1967, but that was already in the mix in Berkeley in the 50s, uh, in the early 60s when he was there. Uh, any questions or thoughts before I carry on? This is quite a long Dhamma talk. Yes. I was wondering, uh, maybe a bit of a basic question, but the relationship between impermanence and cessation. My understanding previously was that Niroda cessation refers not necessarily just to the cessation of suffering or attachment, but basically cessation of just individual aspects of experience and their arising and mm-hmm. then ceasing. That cessation and impermanence are very closely connected, mm-hmm. but then from what you're saying now, maybe that was a wrong understanding that the cessation refers to the cessation of attachment rather than, in a sense, some sound coming and ceasing. Oh, well, it can be both. It can be, I mean, it's a good question. Um, so, that, uh, so the insight that is often used to characterize stream entry, Yankinchi Samudaya Damang Sabantang Niroda Damantiya, whatever is subject to arising is subject to cessation. So that Literally, you know, what goes up comes, you know, whatever goes up comes down. What begins ends. So that's a very, um, uh, you know, practical, tangible sense of, of things beginning and ending. But, um, so it's in that respect, it doesn't mean dukkani roda specifically, but it's it's just uh, talking about things, uh, things that begin necessarily will come to an end. That's uh, that's part of the. Um, that uh, quality, but then in the Four Noble Truths, it, you know, it's it, it's more specific about the, the cessation of dukkha. 
that that is that dukkha is one of the things that having arisen because it's an arisen thing therefore it must come to an end it's not a permanent thing it's not an absolute reality so uh, the experience of dukkha is a is a mental event it's an experiential event it's a, a pattern that takes shape and then and then dissolves Don't make it too complicated. <laughs> uh, you can. Uh, there's various different ways, and an interesting. There's a very good little section in uh, Venerable Paiuto's book, Dependent Origination, which I think Ajahn Pasano and I, I think we quoted the whole passage, which is called uh, "A Problem with the Word Niroda," and uh, it's because the English word niro- uh, cessation doesn't quite capture all of the different aspects of the word niroda in Pali, because it comes from uh, rujati, uh, which, also, which means to um, to hold or to sustain. Um, and so that niroda doesn't just mean the ending of a thing that has begun, it can also mean the non-arising of something. It's, it's, it's well worth reading as a, a whole section. It's, uh, it's uh, very clearly spelled out, because... Um, so then we, we talk about, uh, say, Dukkha Niroda, or the, uh, we, we, like in, in the teaching on dependent origination, it's said uh, with the cessation of ignorance, there is a cessation of sankhara and so on. But that doesn't mean ignorance that has begun and then ended. It can also mean with the non-arising of ignorance. When there is no ignorance, then, then there is no sankhara, no uh, namarupa, and so on. And so that the, uh, another way it's translated is uh, to hold in check, to to kind of to restrain. But niroda is also um, that sense of, of uh, uh, something being restrained or not not arising, or as can also be it's um, the say the the cessation of of um, uh, becoming like bhava niroda. It doesn't mean that say if you're walking along you suddenly stop in your tracks. That you're not, you know that you're the me become me sort of going over there suddenly comes to an end. But it's the that neuroda can be that the the mind stops giving solidity or, or permanence or or a, uh, a sense of of uh, absoluteness to some action or some experience. So that anyway, what what is, what ends is the thingness. Does that make sense? So you can say this is this is a book. My mind calls it a book, and then in that it's calling it a permanent thing, just by way of convenience. But um, to for this book to cease, then doesn't mean I have to have to burn it or destroy it. But rather, its its bookishness, its bookness, can be uh, can cease by the change of view in relationship to it. The mind recognizes, oh, this is this has come together as pieces of tree that were pieces of earth, being I mean, put together with pieces of uh, ink, and then they're formed into this uh, this object that uh, and we call it book. But that's a, a convenient fiction, and so that the the uh, the mind says, "Oh, that's a book," because we're human beings, and that's a, a word that we, we use to refer a sound that we use to refer to this kind of an object. But its its bookness is not absolute. It's like in one of Lumpur Charles' talks when he had a a, a, a very Profound quality of, uh, of uh, meditation insight. He said, "I saw the kettle, 
but it wasn't a kettle. It wasn't anything else, but it wasn't a kettle. You know, I saw the spittoon. It wasn't a spittoon, but it's the thingness had left the objects of, of experience. So that's also niroda. So that it doesn't mean that the things disappear, but it's a the um, the um, the apparent solidity or absolute nature of a of a thing, like a, a material object or, or a thought or an emotion or your sense of I. It can be recognized. Oh, that's just an impression. That's just an empty formation. So that the um, <coughs> the the cessation of of um, formations doesn't mean that suddenly you know, all the atoms of the universe disappear. But it, there's the 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 mind is not giving that solidity. It's not giving it permanence or a, a, a giving it a, a, in terms of attitude, making it a solid, real, permanent, external thing. It's recognizing, oh, that's just a convenient way of talking about uh, particular aspects of experience. So in terms of, of contemplating Niroda, that's one of the things that you can you can do, just to, in a sense, letting go of the thingness, letting go of the, the solidity. So it's a, also a way of looking at the empty nature of a thought or of a mood or of a you know, cessation of material object. Um, another way is just... Uh, uh, what Again, the kind of practice Lumpur Sumato would would uh, encourage is just notice the ending of things. So when a word comes to an end, oh, that ended. Or the dumb reading, oh, that comes to an end, that ended. Or um, a breath, uh, an out-breath just ended, or an in-breath just ended. Just to be noticed, oh, that's an ending, there's an ending, there's an ending, there's an ending. So it can be as simple and as direct as that, as uncomplicated as that. Just to, And then... <coughs> The, uh, in particular with the Four Noble Truths, then that quality of, of relationship or the, the Buddha's advice in how to relate to cessation. So Dukkha Niroda, the, the, the non-presence of Dukkha or the ending of Dukkha needs to be realized, Satchikata Bhanti. And so one of the things that, uh, that maybe uh, um, uh, he goes into it in, in sufficient detail in this talk, but one of the things about Realizing the deathless or the unborn, the unoriginated or the ultimate reality is a lot to do with that uh, realizing cessation, that satchikata bhanti. Because, uh, as, again, as Lumpur Sumeri would often say, peace is boring. You know, silence, space, peace, it doesn't catch our attention. Movement catches our attention. Things catch our attention. Like if I hold up my hand, the fingers get our attention. The mind doesn't immediately go, oh, look, the space between the fingers. <laughs> it goes, fingers, right? So that um, the, the qualities of silence, stillness, space are not interesting. We notice them when they're a contrast to some actions, like when the, when the, uh, the sound stops. And the silence is noticeable because it's a contrast to the, the sound that's been there. But then to sustain the attention on on silence, it's difficult to do. It takes effort. So that that um, that such the the realization of of, of dukkha niroda, of cessation of, of dukkha, is that when that when the the, the dukkha stop, when there's no clinging, to notice, uh, to in a way going against the conditioning of the senses. They say, well, there's nothing interesting happening here. What else is going on? Is there someone to think about, or some place to go, or some responsibility I have, or some problem I've got to worry about? 
the something, the mind starts to hunt for the thing to be interested in. So it takes an effort to not follow that impulse of the senses and the, the conditioning of the literally millions of years of of our ancestry, of the senses tell you what's dangerous and interesting and and uh, attractive and so on. To let go of that and then to let the attention be aware of space, silence, stillness, and let the attention stay with that and to to fully open to to those qualities and to uh, really uh, realize the quality of peace, the quality of of, um, of say, stillness, silence, spaciousness, because uh, in terms of <coughs> of a person that we're looking for, a thing that we're doing, then an empty room is not interesting. But uh, if we stop and be still, then the mind can open to the, the presence of, of the Dhamma, which is always here. So that it's a, a way of going against the conditioning of the senses to notice that which is more primal, primary is the, the, the timeless dhamma itself that we miss because we we're so busy looking for the next interesting thing next thing to be worried about or responsible for or irritated by excited by so that um, when you're, uh, you're developing a, a reflection on niroda it's not just uh, also that um, looking at the thing stop that had begun stopping it's that sense of opening the heart to silence to stillness and just letting that really be received and then watching how that there's a kind of blossoming in the heart it's like it's almost like a black and white picture becomes uh, a color one or the the the, the sound comes up and it's like something the heart comes alive does that make sense so uh, it's the ending of of a a thingness but in a sense it's also the the realization of Dhamma. So, can you say it's not just a shift of perception, but it's just abandon of the concept of perception? Well, it's seeing, it's seeing that every perception is transparent. Well, the there can still be seeing and hearing, but the mind isn't imputing a solidity, solidity to that. So emptiness is more about transparency than absence. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Well, I would say you know, the Dhamma is not a thing in the world of other things. <laughs> yeah, the, well, this is also why the, the you know, Lumpur Samadhi was saying you know, the Dhamma is unimaginable. But you have the, in the reflections on Dhamma, you have a you know, sanditiko, apparent here and now, akaliko, timeless. The qualities that the Dhamma has, are, uh, they don't give you much to, to grab onto, as it were. And so that the um, uh, that uh, process of realization, in a sense, is allowing the heart to awaken to its own nature, what's always been here, but is missed because it doesn't grab the attention. So that 
you can't like like I remember actually in a dialogue with um, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, and there was an interesting dialogue with him at the Buddhist Society, and he he's a big um, <coughs> uh, fan of the um, early Desert Fathers. Actually, I don't think anyone there was any Christian he quoted that was after the 11th century. You know, most of them were like the, about the fourth or fifth century, you know, the seventh century. So. The early Christian mystics were his his field of, of interest, and uh, one of the things he said was that to to think of God as a a thing in a universe of other things is a really bad mistake. So, or he, actually, he, was, he spoke even more strongly. It's like it's a it's a disastrous mistake. Well, that's like the you know, the worst kind of mistake you can make. So that uh, yeah, the Dhamma is not a thing, like saying yeah, the the Dhamma doesn't exist, but it's real, <laughs> doesn't stand out, but it's the it's the sort of the fabric of of everything that is. is that well, uh, that's uh, you can in a say you can say in a way you can say it's the ultimate reality. It's the the fabric of every uh, of every experience, mental, physical, spiritual. Which again leaves the thinking mind. <laughs> so, um, another way of approaching it is to say uh, Dhamma is nature. So, uh, in terms of words, uh, one of the ways I used to describe it is like the the integrative, the integrating principle of the universe: physical, mental, spiritual. Literally, in the the, the word means. That which upholds or that which integrates comes from the root dr, uh, which means to to support or to hold. Uh, so the dharma is that which upholds or that which is, integrates. So it's the 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 fundamental integrative reality of the universe. So your uh, words are always going to be imperfect, and uh, and they can point to the way of, of realizing that that quality but they can never describe it in in an accurate or perfect way it's like trying to describe um, yeah say in in terms of, of say particle physics they, they talk about uh, the fundamental level of reality you have 10 dimensions or 23 dimensions or one theory that uh, I ran into that has speaks in terms of 196,884 dimensions, which is rather a lot. And it's, it's very hard to imagine more than three dimensions. You know, our thinking mind is conditioned to the senses. Even talking about 10 dimensions or 23 dimensions is like... So in terms of, of, of Dhamma, then uh, the Buddha focused his attention most of his teachings point to the way to realize that quality and the the means of understanding what gets in the way uh, and to train the heart to awaken to Dhamma rather than trying to describe what Dhamma is. So that 99% of the teachings are talking about the path rather than the qualities of the ultimate reality. So when, when Ajahn Pasana and I put that that book together on the island, we realized, well, this is kind of a bit counter to the whole <laughs> tone of the Pali Canon. But it was really because, um, and it was interesting, when when, uh, 
when I came from Thailand uh, in 1979 to England and was listening to uh, to uh, Ajahn Sumedha giving Dhamma talks at Chinhurst every day, then he talked about ultimate reality and the unborn and the unconditioned a lot. And uh, it was quite striking because one of the very few questions that I did ask him, I didn't ask him many questions, but one of the ones I did, I said, yes, it's interesting that in Thailand you hardly ever hear Nibbana or, or the ultimate reality being talked about, but you talk about it a lot. And he said, well, in this country, a lot of people who are interested in Buddhism, they've, they've become uh, interested in Buddhism because of rejecting theistic Christianity or Judaism and rejecting Christ, uh, theistic religion. So that they, they are approaching Buddhism as a kind of um, humanism with meditation, the way of sort of calming the mind. But they have, they, they, in a sense, they've, they've, they've shut their hearts to the tr- quality of transcendence. So he said, I wanted to, I see it as a, as a huge uh, missing piece within the British Buddhist world, as he was finding it in the 1970s, that people didn't have a sense of the transcendent or, or the, the ultimate. And so the Buddhism was a kind of a way of reorganizing your, the, the kind of living, the living room of your mind. But it was all very much within sort of mundane terms. And so he felt that that quality of transcendence, ultimate truth, which is really the, the heart of the spiritual teachings in, in, uh, in Buddhist practice as much as any other, that was being missed. So he said, that's why I talk about it a lot, is because it's, it somehow has been, um, uh, say, missed within the, the, the expression of Buddhism within Britain. And so that, particularly in the Theravada world, so he said, I felt that it needs to be in, talked about because it's there in the teachings, it's a real essential part of the teachings, but it's, it's uh, been overlooked. And so that uh, and the idea of talking about ultimate reality but not having any kind of God idea, as a sort of God as a super person, that, that's really foreign to people. So he put a lot of effort into talking about that as an ultimate reality that is not some kind of entity or a creator of the universe, but is an ultimate reality that's the very fabric uh, of, all, uh, of all existence, all, all things that are. The... Um, uh, one uh, one expression of it was um, by John Cage, the musician. It was uh, the nothing that supports everything. The, uh, the that the no thing that supports everything. <laughs> that um, so that that and I think it's one of the reasons why he became such a, a massively popular teacher in this country was that people had there was quite a lot of people with faith and interest in Buddhism, but they hadn't being able to really get a, a taste of that quality of transcendence and, and real liberation because they're, they're having a, approaching meditation Buddhism in a quite a mechanistic and, and narrow way. So what he's saying here um, about how it was interesting, because this was in the, in the 2000s, and so I found that in the, in the States when I started going there in the early 90s that people would go to um, the Advaita Devadanta teachers like Andrew Cohen or Gangaji or going off to India to Punjaji's ashram in, in Lucknow or they're, or they're getting really excited about Dzogchen teachings and they didn't realize that that was a, a big part of the Theravada tradition and so uh, <coughs> the way I got introduced to Dzogchen was I was in San Francisco in 1992 and I got a phone call um, from somebody just rang up our, our little Vihara and said um, 
I'm traveling with a Tibetan Lama and uh, he'd like to meet you. Can we come around? I said, okay. <laughs> and that was Sokni Rinpoche, who was the son of Tulku Urgyen, one of the sons of Tulku Urgyen. And Tulku Urgyen had been invited over and he was, he'd done a month-long retreat with Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, um, and you know, various other Vipassana teachers over on the, the East Coast. And then Sokni Rinpoche had come as the, the sort of one of the younger members of the team, and he was out on the West Coast giving some teachings. And, but he'd heard of Ajahn Sumato and, and, um, and the Thai forest tradition, and that our approach to practice was quite similar. So he called up and said, can we talk? I, I literally hardly have even, even heard of Dzogchen up to that point. Maybe he'd read one or, one or two articles in the Buddhist magazines, but I knew nothing about it. And so we sent, he came around and we spent a couple of hours together, and I thought, well, this is an interesting guy. And there was a, so much in common with their approach and the, and the Thai forest tradition, and that uh, that the um, uh, you know there was a I found there was a tremendous um, empathy there, and so that uh, <coughs> and then uh, we ended up uh, doing a few events together, collaborated on a ten day retreat, so that we we co led a ten day retreat together in uh, in Spirit Rock in <coughs> about two thousand and three. 2002, 2003. So anyway, to continue. Generally, in Christianity, God has been given anthropomorphic qualities. That means made into a human, a kind of a super person, or turned into a, a human uh, uh, model. So this makes it personal, makes it like a father figure, a patriarch, God the Father. And on one level, that creates a sense of a personal relationship. We can all relate to the idea of a father because that's the cultural conditioning. God is some kind of heavenly father, some sort of powerful figure. But the reality of this moment still keeps it as some kind of abstraction of the mind. Where is it? What is, where is he? The feminist movement asks, why does God have to be he? Why can't God be a she? And this is a valid point. But why do we have to define God with a gender at all? In Buddhism, they don't have this problem because God, quote-unquote, as it were, has never been anthropomorphized, never been turned into a human uh, external form. It's not given any kind of human quality or any quality whatsoever except that of awakening to the reality of this moment. So you can't, so to say like, I love the Dhamma and the, dum the Dhamma loves me is a totally ridiculous statement in Buddhist terminology. So the Dhamma loves you? What? Doesn't make sense. Has no meaning. Literally, it doesn't mean anything in, in Buddhist terms. When we emphasize the characteristics of conditioned phenomena, then what happens? The mind goes from one thing to another, as in thought. When we get lost in thinking, one thought connects to another, and the thoughts proliferate. If I use thought with some kind of logic, I see right now, in this room, for example, that that is Robert and that is Catherine, that is Rochna, I go from one to the other. Yet the space between Catherine and Rochna is also present. But that can go completely unnoticed because the interest lies in the conditions which have qualities and that can cause some kind of emotional reaction in consciousness. So I would say this is Venerable Tanna and Venerable Nidaro. They're interesting because they're humans. The space between them is not interesting. The attention goes, well, this person, that person. The, the, there's no story to the space in between them. 
they don't have a name or an age or a nationality. You are interesting. <laughs> <laughs> the space between you is not interesting. It doesn't mean interesting is good. It just means it's interesting. It catches the attention. Beings that have not awakened to the unborn, but are simply looking at life through the conditioned experiences they have, perceive life in a very dualistic way, always in terms of right and wrong, good and bad, male and female, black and white. These qualities become the deciding factors in their lives. There might be the logic of there might be the logic there of do good and refrain from doing evil, quote unquote, but in terms of understanding the way things are, they are caught in the death realm in things that exist, that arise and cease, come and go. Their lives are often fraught with suffering because they cannot keep anything as a permanent possession. When they put their faith in another person, for example, and want that person to be there for them all the time, there's always a feeling of loss when he or she goes away, even if it's just for a little while, and then they come back again. Inevitably also, there is the death moment and a sense of loss when what they have depended on is dead. So what does one do if one's refuge is in another person, or in an institution, or in a way of thinking, or in family life, or in a political view, or in anything which is subject to change, to birth and death? Unawakened human beings, what we call patujanas in Pali, are forever suffering because their lives are threatened by the things that influence consciousness. They can't hold on to anything. They can't sustain anything. They may be able to sustain an, an illusion, of course, which is why their demands on life are sometimes just for stability, just for something they can count on. Don't act too strangely. Don't do something eccentric. Don't go funny. <laughs> Keep this illusion that everything is all right, and everything is going to be all right. And then in the afterlife, when we die, we'll all go to heaven and have a, a Leicester summer school up in heaven all the time. <laughs> I think that even that could be quite boring after a few weeks. The Buddha pointed to suffering as the first noble truth. There is dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. When you go to interfaith meetings and people meet, uh, pe sorry, when you go to interfaith meetings and meet people from theistic traditions, you discover that a lot of them find this first noble truth rather depressing. They tend to see it as some kind of positioning we take on life, and think we believe that everything is unsatisfactory, dukkha. If we do grasp that view which is a misinterpretation of the First Noble Truth, then of course we will feel obliged to interpret everything in that way. And I've met people who have felt that looking at flowers is dangerous because, quote, after all, they're just going to wilt and die. You'll get attached to them, and then they fail you in the end. <laughs> it's true. Every single one of those flowers is going to let us down. Die. That's a kind of per, a perpetual wet blanket approach to life which leads to depression. And if you keep up that kind of attitude, you're just going to feel that there is no purpose or meaning to your life. But recognize that what the Buddha was really doing was taking this most ordinary condition that we all experience and putting it into the context of a noble truth rather than regarding it as a horrible fact, as some kind of miserable statement about life or some pessimistic view. Notice the word noble in noble truth. This is a truth to be realized. We're not told to grasp or believe this truth. It isn't a belief. It isn't a dogma. It isn't a metaphysical truth. It isn't the ultimate reality. It's a very common human experience of loss. 
identifying with that which is unsatisfactory, with change, with the delusions we create, the expectations and assumptions we make about our lives. In Buddhism, there are what we are called uh, the heavenly messengers, the devadutas. These are old age, sickness and death. Rather than seeing these things as depressing specters that come to us and scare us, we can see them as messengers. What does that mean in terms of our own experience of life? What devadutas have we encountered? We all have, haven't we? We've all experienced loss. Maybe seen our own parents get old, getting sick and dying. Maybe see ourselves getting old and are now experiencing pain and sickness. This is common to all human beings, and there's nothing wrong with it. It isn't bad. The point is to see that the conditioned realm is something to contemplate and understand rather than to make assumptions about or to try and control it or bend it to our desires and will. The more we try to control the conditioned realm, the more disappointing it will become until we finally feel despair, fear and depression and all the negative mental states that could dominate our conscious experience. So, for example, just, just today someone was coming to visit um, and uh, spent uh, uh, spends time here helping out with the uh, um, the bookkeeping in the, in the office, and uh, just been diagnosed with a, a serious illness, and so this was very much in his mind. And we're to- we're talking about exactly this point that the dukkha is not that the body get, is gets sick and is is going to die one day, but the feeling of of wrongness, or it shouldn't be this way, or this isn't fair, or, or why me, or why now. It, that's the the dukkha. The the dukkha that is the aging of the body and the aches and pains, that is kind of non-negotiable. That you know, Having been born, these bodies were going to stop working one day, one way or another. But the dukkha, which is the subject of the Four Noble Truths, is what the mind adds to that. It's the, the I don't want it to be this way, you know, why is it happening to me, this isn't fair, when's it going to come to an end? That, um, that feeling of wrongness, or it shouldn't be this way, or this isn't fair, that's the the dukkha that can be ended completely through uh, through wisdom. And so that when uh, we talk about dukkha niroda, we were having this conversation earlier about the ending of dukkha, it doesn't mean no more arthritis, no more aches and pains, and everybody loves you all the time. So if you're hoping for that, you <laughs> try down the road. You know? It's the wrong wrong universe, because uh, that uh, that's not available, uh, at least the, from the Buddhist perspective. That's not something that... Uh, it happens in nature. But what is possible, the dukkha niroda that is possible, is that the mind can not make a problem out of uh, being disliked by somebody or having aches and pains or um, working hard at something and then being criticized or blamed and, and so forth. That uh, that can be recognized as, as uh, this is something that the mind doesn't have to get upset about or feel it shouldn't be this way or that uh, is unfair or that Nature is out of balance in the fact that there's this illness or this this painful feeling. Rather, that uh, seeing that this is a, uh, a natural part of things. So one of the the uh, ways of describing that, uh, the insight that comes with the reflection on the Four Noble Truths is going from a self-centered perspective to a Dhamma-centered perspective or a, a nature-centered perspective. Seeing that, well, of course, if you've been if you've been born then one day this life's going to come to an end. That's non-negotiable, right? Every single one of these bodies here, gathered in the sala, is going to stop breathing one day. That is not news. Right? 
But isn't it interesting how when those words get said, for a second or a couple of seconds, the mind goes, <gasps> wait a minute, that no, c can't be right. Hang on a moment. But it, how could that not be true? Yeah, every single one of these bodies have been born, and they're all going to stop breathing one day, one you know sooner or later, right? So, but part of us is surprised at that. We'll think, well, well, not today. You know, let's get to the end of the reading first. <laughs> I want to find out what happens with the unborn. <laughs> but, um, but it, it's uh, that sense of of uh, wrongness or unfairness, or it shouldn't be this way. Ness. That's the dukkha that ends with the, the insight into the Four Noble Truths. <clears throat> Whatever we love and cherish is inevitably subject to death. When something we love dies, we feel grief. Noticing this, in taking up the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, we're willing to learn from it instead of just feeling frightened and averse to it. If we try to get rid of suffering, deny it, push it away, run away from it, we can never really understand it. Our reactions will always be some kind of resistance to any possibility of understanding. Understanding means there is a willingness to suffer. This isn't any, f uh, this isn't any form of masochism, but a positive sense of trust a willingness to look at our own sense of despair, inadequacy, fear, loss, or grief, in a way that is not just thinking about it, but noticing that it is like this, quote-unquote. Then, as we examine these mental states by understanding them, accepting them, and embracing them, we begin to see that they also cease. We begin to realize that we can't sustain them. Even though we might feel we will never get over the loss of our loved one, we can, actually. We notice that there are moments when we think of that person and feel grief, and then there are moments when we don't think of them. We may not notice those moments of not thinking of them, however, because we assume that we have this state of grief as a continuous mental state. If we are willing to trust in our, in our own awareness of this grief, then we will recognize that it changes. So in accepting grief, we are no longer clinging to it. We are no longer saying it's mine or making value judgments about it. We are instead willing to feel and understand the grief, willing to be with it, willing to let it be what it is. And then what happens is, it ceases. As we then observe the cessation of grief, we can mentally note that the absence of grief is like this. In the third noble truth, then, there is cessation or the absence of a condition that existed but is no longer present. Now, how do we realize this? Because this is a reality. We realize it by intuitive awareness. If you think about this too much, you can't really be with it. You just get lost in your own logic, reasoning, associations, and the sense of yourself. But if you're willing to accept something for what it is, allow it to be the way it is, you look at it through wisdom and understanding, rather than through some personal distortion of it. As long as you feel grief in terms of I'm grieving, and grief is mine. How can I get over this grief? What should I do about it? Life will never be the same again. You are proliferating. One of those thoughts will connect, and you'll be caught in perpetuating feelings of grief and projecting it onto your experience of life. 
Well, then see the things around you through this veil, through this distortion which you adhere to. In the second noble truth, the insight is to let go of the cause of suffering, which is attachment to the conditioned, the ball. This attachment is the result of not understanding. It's like a habit we have and don't even know that we're doing it. We're certainly not intentionally thinking, I'm going to hold on to this grief no matter what. We usually try to get rid of grief, try to brush it aside, or do anything to distract ourselves from it. This very desire to get rid of it, however, is attachment out of ignorance. It means we're not willing to learn from the heavenly messenger. We're merely trying to deny or resist it. So, letting go of suffering isn't a rejection out of fear, out of denial or ignorance. It is through understanding it. Letting go isn't throwing or pushing suffering away, but letting it be. You let this feeling, this emotion, be in the present, be what it is. And that takes a certain trust in your ability to bear with suffering, unpleasantness, pain, misfortune, failure, and all the disappointments of life. Now when we explore our conscious experience, and we look at it closely, we notice space, like the space between Rochner and Catherine, both of whom have died since this Dhamma talk was given. <laughs> Curiously enough, they were alive when this talk was given, but they have both passed on since then. Like the space between Rochner and Catherine, for example. This doesn't sound like anything very important. So you might say, well, what's there to look at? It's just space. But we are noting reality. When I look between these two people, I can see the space between them with my eyes. It isn't that I'm making it up. And if I start observing space just on a visual level, the result is a sense of spaciousness, because space doesn't have any quality to it except spaciousness. Within the space there can be blue and red, men and women, chairs and tables, and these have certain qualities and properties to them. But all you can say about space itself, in terms of experience, is that it is spacious. This is a way of training ourselves to notice the way it is, a way of letting go of just the habitual tendency of going from one thing to another, of admiring particular qualities or being appalled by the unpleasantness of conditions. So this, um, uh, say, bringing attention to the to the present and then noticing space, then there's a, uh, there was a, a talk in the mindfulness of the path to the deathless and a similar vein. But uh, again, like that, uh, talking about neurotic, just be noticing that a word comes to an end or, or a, a sitting comes to an end or a breath comes to an end. That the um, In the same way, we can develop that noticing space in an extremely ordinary, mundane way. It's just like noticing the space between two people, the space between your, your fingers or the, the space between the... You know, to two mats in the in the temple this day the uh <coughs> and so the the noticing of that on a practical level just in the material form then helps the the uh, the same kind of noticing to happen on an internal level so rather than focusing upon the thoughts that you have or the emotions that you have when when an emotion comes to an end notice the, the space after it or like he's saying about grief that to notice, oh look, I'm, I'm uh, my big my big problem, my big my big doubt that I'm wrestling with. I say, this is my big problem. I just forgot about it for half an hour. Oh, <laughs> what, what happened to my doubt, my big problem, when I wasn't thinking about it? Well, part of it, well, it was still there, 
just you weren't paying attention to it. But that uh, reflection on space and, and noticing space and helps us to, in a sense, awaken to the fact that uh, a lot of the um, the sense of pressure or, or tension or, or feeling of the mind being cluttered in life is because of always focusing on the objects. If we focus on the space, like the, when the emotion comes to an end, the grief comes to an end, or the dizziness comes to an end, before the next thing begins, what does that space feel like? What's the quality of space? Can can you sustain the attention on that spaciousness? Or do we say, oh, only the thoughts have value, only the memories or the, the emotions, the moods, they have value. The other bit doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't get... It doesn't, uh, get any traction on the attention. So it's a conscious noticing of space, silence, stillness. And that that I would encourage that as a simple practice and then noticing the, the what's the result of that. When when we are able to say just something like the breath, rather than focusing just on the sensations of the breath, noticing that the spaces between the in breath and the out breath. Noticing the space around the breath. In the in, in the internal field of experience, the silence around the sound, before and after, but also the silence that's there behind the sound. Uh, if you develop this kind of reflection, then the, there's a lot more space in the world than we than we we realize. Often, Lumpur Sumedha would say, "The space is the most important thing in this hall. If there wasn't space here, we couldn't get, even get in the building." <laughs> the space is really important, but we overlook it because attention goes to the people, the objects. So these are a few reflections today. I'll leave it there. The, the talk continues. So we'll carry on with that tomorrow.